Life before we moved in with ABCH was chaotic. That's literally the word that you could use to define it. We moved a lot. We never stayed in one place more than a couple months, really. I went to 13 elementary schools, so we didn't know what stability was. I remember not wearing shoes. <laughs> like, we never wore shoes. Yeah. So a lot of times we wouldn't even know where we were sleeping, and we would actually sleep on park benches, stuff like that. We moved from California to Florida, and we stayed with our grandma, and it was a lot on her. So her daughter, which is our aunt, stepped in and was like, we can take them. Their great aunt and uncle, um, they wanted to find a family with a mom and a dad and children, so they have an example of what a mom and a dad and, and how children respond and react with each other. The director of the children's home then uh, called us and told us about them, showed us some pictures, and told us it would be more of a permanent situation. They wanted to make sure that we knew that God loved us, you know? They showed us that God loved us by loving us unconditionally, you know? We were their children and... From day one. Yeah, we've had 30-something children come through our home through foster care, and uh, we've adopted a 10 through the Alabama Baptist Children's Home. Melissa, Misty, and Mindy, uh, they came to us when they were six, nine, and 10, and have uh, been with us for 15 years, and officially became Bussies on February 4th, 2016. Adoption day was a lot of fun because we were the biggest group that got adopted and I was also the oldest one the judge ever adopted. So the judge said he'd been doing this for probably 30, I think he might have said 35 years. He said, I've never had anybody adopt eight people at one time. He said, y'all definitely have a record for that. <laughs> we just made legal what was already true, you know? Mm -hmm. We just put it in paper. Most children run through such a difficult time in their past. Helps them understand what other people go through difficult times are. So I don't think God wastes any of that. I think he used that to give them compassion. And you can see that they really want to help and serve people. What I'm looking forward to the future is I do plan on becoming a foster parent one day. You know, all of my dental work went through the people donating to the children's home. Children's Home sent us to the University of South Alabama where I have a social work degree that I'm able to help others in the same situation I was in. Multi-generational patterns of abuse, dropping out of high school, drugs, all of that have been rewritten because of the children's home. We know how men are supposed to, to care for us because of our foster dad. We know how, how we're supposed to carry ourselves as women because of our foster mom. And all of that was possible through the children's home. The common denominator was God. My favorite part about being in foster care and the life that we have now is how big our family is. It's gigantic. And so I'll, I'll put a picture of it on my desk and people are like, what, where are all those people? And I'm like, that's my family. And I'll be like, I'm number five of 13. And then it just starts your testimony right there. It's literally a walking testimony. Good to be here. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Um, <clears throat> I want to say thank you to my friend Kenneth Bruce for this opportunity to preach to you this morning. Uh, it's exciting to be here. Very grateful for the partnership with Westwood Baptist Church. 
and looking forward to how God is going to strengthen that partnership uh, in the months and, and years to come. Uh, this morning, primarily, it is not about the children's home. Uh, I think the best use of time on a Sunday morning is to open up God's Word, uh, hear what He has to say through the written, inspired Word, um, and see how it applies to, to us and our lives, to our families, uh, to, to dads, to moms, to children. Um, that's, that's what this morning is primarily about. So uh, the title of my message is Foster Care and the Jericho Road. So let's stand together, and I'm going to read... Um, I'm going to read the word here, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get started. Verse 25, and behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. Jesus replied, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells a parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So Jesus concludes and he, he asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we weren't uh, half dead. We were completely dead in our sin and our transgressions and you rescued us. You saved us. You were the true good Samaritan and offered us grace when we were sinners uh, who had no hope. So, Lord, thank you for that. Lord, help that message, the gospel, drive us to have compassion and show mercy to others. Father, we love you, and it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Uh, we've got a lot to cover here, and before I jump right into the text, uh, a lot of times it's, it's easy to jump right into the parable, right? Because we feel like that's where the meat is here, but I don't want to gloss over these first few verses, and so you'll notice in your outline and your notes there, if you're going to follow along taking notes, there's a preamble here, and I want us to see that this parable is about God's mercy, not moralism. You could easily see this parable, and, and that could make you think, well, I've got to do more. Or I gotta, I gotta do certain things to earn favor with God. And I want us to get, get right here, and we can see this in this dialogue, how this comes out, that this parable is about God's mercy. That's what drives us here. So it starts with a question, right? The law expert asks a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this question is also asked, uh, there's three accounts of it. Uh, the rich young ruler asks this question. He says, what, what do I have to do to be saved? And in, that, in both of these examples, there's some striking similarities. Both of these men ask how they can be saved. And in the case of the rich young ruler, if you're familiar with that parable, 
you know, Jesus responds with, gives the man some commandments. He's in, and he gives him some, you know, lists off several of the Ten Commandments. And the rich young ruler responds, well, all those I've kept since I was a boy. I've done all that. I've got that. What else? And I love how Mark's account of this, this parable, he says, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. I like that. I kind of get this idea that Jesus um, is, is kind of having one of those bless your heart moments, right? But maybe like a real sincere bless your heart, like he, you know, bless his soul, he, he doesn't get it. He says, one thing you lack, go give all your possessions to the poor and come and follow me. And the rich man walks away and he's grieved because he's unwilling to depart with his wealth. He's a very rich man and he's unwilling to do that. And, you know, he wasn't really looking to follow Jesus, was he? He wanted to make sure he had some of his moral boxes checked off. He says, yeah, I've done that, I've done that, what else? He wasn't really willing to follow the Lord. And so the only thing, he didn't realize his sin or else he wouldn't have said, I've kept all these things, I've done all these things. Yeah, what else, Lord? He would have instead said, is there any hope for a sinner like me? Because I've not always done what you just said, Jesus. In this parable here in Luke, we see Jesus respond to the law expert a little differently. He says, you're the expert. You tell me how to be saved. Because he knows this man knows the, the, he knows the law, right? He knows the first five books of the Old Testament very well. Much better than myself, probably. He probably had a good bit of it memorized, perhaps. So he quotes Deuteronomy 6.5. The law expert says... Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And then he quotes out of uh, Leviticus, I believe 19, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, yeah, do that and you'll live. Has anybody ever been able to do that? I mean, I haven't even done that well this morning. I mean, to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, if I... To love my neighbor the way I love myself, usually the first thing I do when I, my heat, feet hit the floor is uh, I'm thinking about myself, not about who I can serve. The only appropriate response in both of these instances would be to say, but Jesus, what do I do when I haven't always done that? What if, what if I haven't always loved the Lord my God with all my heart? Jesus is using these parables to try to get them to see that they're sinners in need of a Savior himself. In verse 29, the law expert asks another question. He says, yeah, okay, I got that. Who's my neighbor? See, that's the wrong question. That's not, that's not the appropriate question here. It's not to say, and who's my neighbor? This question reveals he's looking for Jesus to provide him with a list of rules to follow. You know, he wants to have some particulars, some items that will make that commandment attainable, reachable. It's as if he's looking for Jesus to say, well, I'm glad you asked. You know, you're... Your neighbor is uh, any Jewish male who's been circumcised, who's between the ages of 18 and 25, that lives directly you know, beside your primary residence. It, I think David Platt, uh, former pastor in the Birmingham area, current IMB president, I think he's got a good quote uh, that stuck with me since I first heard it about 10 years ago. He says, I'm convinced that if there were a thousand ways to earn favor with God, we would want a thousand and one ways to earn favor with God. And I don't want anyone here to be misled this morning. Before we get into the parable, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to look at this dialogue here and learn from it. Because if, if we think that following a list of rules, regular church attendance, tithe, voting Republican or Democrat, or, or you know, being in a certain social stratosphere, 
being a good family man, all of the, some of these things, very good things, right? But if we think that if we do those things that God will then owe us salvation, we would be horribly mistaken. And I don't want that for anyone here. It's, it's not on our merit that we can be saved. It's on one man, Jesus Christ, and his holy and blameless life that we can be saved. So this parable is about how we are to be rich in showing mercy to others because God, in his loving kindness, has been rich in showing mercy to us as sinners. So moralism won't save us, but God's mercy will, and loving our neighbor is rooted in our love for Christ. So let's move into three things that this parable teaches us about loving our neighbor. That's how you know I'm Baptist, because we've got three, we've got three things we're going to work through. First is this, loving our neighbor does not have boundaries. When the law expert asks, you know, and who's my neighbor? You know, as we said, he's trying to look for a way to limit his compassion to certain types of people. In the parable, what I think is so amazing is the way Jesus sets this up. The Samaritan is the one who helps the Jewish man who's on the side of the road half dead. And it's incredible that Jesus uses that dynamic because the Samaritan shows mercy and the Jews and Samaritans were enemies, right? They, they hated each other. If anything, we would expect the Samaritan to ridicule, cuss at, spit at, kick, at the very least, just walk, keep on going, walk on by. But he has compassion. We notice that the Levite, and this is important here, I want us to, to, to see this and really understand it. Because I think with what we see happen with the Levite and the priest, I think we're probably closer to them than we would be to the, to the situation that Jesus sets up with the Samaritan and the Jew. Here's what happens. The Levite and the priest, they had all the biblical knowledge. They knew the Bible, these two individuals. And the man hearing this story, the law expert, he would have known that. The Levite and the priest, they had all the biblical knowledge. Secondly, they had all the ethical principles. They had all the racial affinity to the man who's half dead needing help on the side of the road. And yet it wasn't enough. They kept going. The Samaritan had none of these things, and yet he had compassion, and that was enough. Matthew 5, 46 through 47, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, well, what, what more are you doing than others? It's not enough that we love those who look like us and act like us and think like us vote like us, operate in the same social class that we do. It, this parable reveals that Jesus requires Christians to show love to everyone, even those who are most difficult to love, without exception. Our neighbor is anyone who needs help. So loving our neighbor does not have boundaries. Secondly, loving our neighbor will demand our time and our energy and our resources. In this parable, we see the Samaritan care for a full range of needs. I'm going to list out seven ways uh, that the Samaritan shows his love and compassion to this, this gentleman who's half dead on the side of the road. So if you're following along, you can, you can make, take notes here. First, first way, he risks his own personal safety. It's important to know historically in the context, again, what Jesus is saying to the, the law expert, he would have known this. The, the, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, one is way up high and one is below sea level in elevation. It's about a 30-mile stretch. And it had a nickname. It was, no, it was known as the Bloody Way, the Bloody Path. 
It was dangerous. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an easy journey because it presented the perfect place for robbers to hide out and attack those who would be vulnerable. There's a lot of switchbacks. My wife and I, um, not you know, long ago, were on vacation. We went to Pikes Peak. We went to the top in, in Colorado. And you, you drive all the way. It's just bad. It's like this the whole way up. And I thought about this passage. I thought, man, I can't imagine walking that or sitting on a donkey going all the way down. Um, it, it wasn't an easy journey, but it was known for being a place that was dangerous. So he risks his own personal safety. What if, what if the man isn't really dead? What if that's just a pawn, right? That, was, that would have been a realistic thing to think. What if in stopping to help, they had, the people who did the, the damage, the robbers, aren't really far from where they've just been? So he risks his own personal safety. Secondly, he completely destroys his schedule. This is the hardest one for me. I'm a schedule guy. I like schedule. I like looking at the Outlook calendar on a Sunday evening or Monday morning and seeing where I, I want to, if I, if I need some time just to check email, I like putting that, I'm, I'm, I'm weird, right? But don't mess with my schedule. That's my schedule. Anybody else like that? I'd rather give money away than, than give schedule time. This dude completely destroys his schedule. Completely destroys it. Third, he becomes dirty and bloody through his personal involvement as he cares for the victim. I, I'm not a first responder, never have been, never have been on the scene of someone who's about to die, perhaps. But I can imagine they probably understand, any first responders in the room probably understand this. You're not going to help someone who's half dead without getting bloody. Like, it's going to be messy, right? There's going to be some spit, some blood, some dirt, and you got to get that person up by yourself on the, the animal that's with, I mean, it's going, to get, it's going to get close. It's going to get nasty. Fourth, he, he gives up oil and wine to care for his wounds, something that's probably a commodity at that time, right? Something that probably is precious to him, but he's going to have to give that up sacrificially to ensure this man has the care that he needs in that exact moment. Fifth, he gives up his donkey, or it says his animal, and chooses to walk the rest of the journey. It's bad enough. He's walking down, back and forth, on a dirt road now. He doesn't even get to ride on an animal, certainly delaying the, the pace, for sure. He gives up his finances. You see, as it goes along, the sixth thing, he gives up his finances to pay for a hotel room for the victim, a stranger, doesn't even know him, supposed to hate him culturally. And the seventh thing, and this is most incredible to me, he promises a return visit. Promises to come back and check on him and says, I'll pay the debt. Whatever happens to him, take care of him. I've got to go, but I've brought him here. Whatever it costs, get him the care he needs. As long as it takes, I'll be back and I'll pay his debt. What an, I mean, is that not what Christ has, has done on our behalf? If we're expecting to love our neighbors as we do ourselves, it's going to require our time, our energy, and our resources to do it. Third thing, loving our neighbor is not optional. There's over 2,000 verses in the Bible that speak of God's justice and his love for the marginalized in society, the poor and the needy, the oppressed. And the parable of the Good Samaritan reminds us that mercy really is a true test of Christian faith. And this isn't an isolated example this isn't like, oh, that's that one passage. You know that one time Jesus talked about caring for someone who needs help over there in Luke 10? No, I mean, this was a core aspect of his ministry. This was central to, to what he said. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating the social gospel here. 
Okay, our, our debt has been paid in, in, in heaven, right, by, based on what we believe, but fruit is evidence of that. And so it talks about that in Matthew 25. We see Jesus distinguish between those who have true faith and those who don't by examining their fruit, right? We, we know Matthew 7. You'll know them by their fruit. The, the wide is the gate, but narrow is the path. And Jesus says, you know, whatever you did for the least of these brothers, if you go read Matthew 25, it's a lot of what he says that the fruit is, is how we care for those who are in need. He says, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, it's as if you did it for me. He's saying that a life poured out in deeds of mercy and compassion is the inevitable outcome of true Christian faith. I think in James 2, 14 through 17, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds can such faith save him suppose a brother or sister is cold or without food and we say to him go i wish you well keep warm and well fed but we don't do anything about his physical needs what good is it in the same way faith by itself if not accompanied by works is dead so the bible from start to finish is admonishing us and teaching us that that loving our neighbor which extends to anyone in need, does not have boundaries. It will require our time and our energy and our resources. And it is a litmus test of sorts of true Christian faith. So what I want to do here is, is you'll see there's, we've got a little bit more to go. And I want to try to make some application. And I want to get narrow. We've, I've, so broadly, I think what we can assume based on this text is, is what I've just summarized. Right? This applies to anyone in need, even those who are hardest to love. But what I want to do now is I want to make this application for kids in the foster care system. Because there's 6,000 kids in foster care in our state, like 430, I believe, nationwide. And I want to make this application more specific here. So first, first point, I, and guys, I know this is a heavy text. It's hard to go into churches and preach a text that's real heavy, right? So I want to pour on a good dose of grace and, and say here, like, I don't feel often like I've got this figured out and I've preached this sermon before, okay? It's, I don't think you figure it out, right? We're gonna be challenged daily. We've gotta remind ourselves of the gospel daily. For me to set aside my schedule for someone else who needs a hand, I'm gonna to have to die to self daily. So let's, just, just hear me say that, okay? I'm empathizing with you. It, I don't, I'm not trying to beat us up here on Labor Day weekend. But there's 6,000 kids in foster care in Alabama and about 40% of those live within the greater Birmingham area, which would make sense, right? Population-wise, if you look at the greater Birmingham area, that probably lines up about what you'd expect. And some of those, a good bit of them are in Shelby County. And I don't believe it's an overstatement to call that an orphan crisis. I mean, if children are sleeping on a sleeping bag on a cot at DHR because there's they had to, the, the DHR worker came, had to remove those kids perhaps from their home. It was not safe. They could not leave those kids there. And they have nowhere to place them because there's not an available home. They call Baptist Children's Home. Y'all got any room? Sorry, we, we are full at capacity. Every campus care home is full and every uh, foster family has their placements. And so that child ends up spending the night on a, on a sleeping bag at DHR. That, that's a crisis to me. I mean, that, that's a serious thing. Like, the Bible says care for the orphan and widow, real specifically, and yet we've got kids who aren't being cared for. Like, that's a big deal. But we don't know it, do we? Like, I'm telling some of you who are like, I didn't know that. 
And so I want us to just know that. I want us to hear the, the truth about the reality of the situation. I mean, these children live in nearby neighborhoods, in apartment complexes, and they come from trailer parks, not far from where a lot of us live. But yet, we would never know it if we didn't see the statistics and know that it was going on. I mean, there's 3,200 Southern Baptist churches in the, the state. There's almost 10,000 evangelical churches in Alabama. And I, I think God's word's really clear. And so if you do the math, I really think the church, as it's supposed to be, as it's intended, as God's told us, the church can do a lot here. I'm not trying to say we don't need any government. I'm just saying that I think you know, our government set up some structures and infrastructures that, that, have, that help us. And you go to another country and you'll see that we've got infrastructure. Praise God for that. But it's going to take the church, God's people, to really make an impact here. Second thing, God has a special concern for the orphan. We don't, have, we don't have much time to spend a lot of time here, but there's three groups of people in the Bible that really get special attention. And I'm okay saying that because I think God's okay putting it in the, in the Bible. Like orphans, widows, and sojourners, they get referenced specifically. Um, generally, yes, God's saying, yes, care for your neighbor and everyone's your neighbor. But specifically, he seems to have a special concern for the orphan. Over 40 specific references to God's love for the orphan throughout the Old and New Testament. Why orphans? I mean, why? He, he could have gotten specific on a number of different categories, and we would have affirmed that, right? It wouldn't be weird if it was something else mentioned there in James 1.27. We'll get to James 1.27, by the way. You can't work for Baptist Children's Home and not mention James 1.27. But why orphans? I'm going to give you two reasons. I believe the reason we see God specifically call our attention to the orphan over and over and again is because orphans are particularly helpless. Any of you who have children or a little sibling, they, they need, even my six-year-old who's getting more and more independent, he has to have dad help him out, right? My four-year-old would, would only dress half of herself before we take her to school, right? She, they need to be fed. They need to be clothed. They need, to, they need protection and nurturing. And many times in, in cases where there's a natural disaster or there's something horrible that's happened, children are the most vulnerable in that position. They need somebody to stand in the gap on their behalf or they will suffer. It takes somebody standing in the gap. They're particularly helpless. Second reason, another reason I think we see special attention to orphan is because in many cases, they're going to take for granted the care we give to them. Kids are usually selfish. And if you're a child, I'm not trying to be mean, but... I, I, and they learn it from us, right? Adults, I'm pretty, I can be really selfish too. So before we're quick to judge our children, like, where do they get it from? I mean, they're born into sin. So kids are naturally worried about their needs being met. Politicians, you know, I think Jesus knew this at the time. Kids and women were second class in society. Jesus never treated them that way. They weren't going to earn a vote by him uh, catering to their needs. Nowadays, you have to question, is a politician really, you know, does he really care about those people or is he just trying to earn a vote? Right? You didn't have to worry about that here. With a child, it doesn't matter. You're not going to get votes. You're not going to get popularity points. Right? If you care for a child, it's not going to get cool points. You can't even post their picture on social media. So you're not going to be cool in your little circle of evangelical friends for doing it because you can't do that. It's a huge no-no. There's, no, there's nothing you're going to get in return for doing this other than the joy the Lord gives you for being obedient to his word. 
Caring for a child in foster care exposes our heart. It reveals, am I truly here to serve? Am I truly here for that child? Or am I worried about me and how I'm going to feel if the DHR takes him away one day? It's our love for the child that drives us to risk getting hurt and heartbroken if a child's removed one day. That's usually a, a big factor, and people are scared about that. I get it. Valid concern. Totally valid. But our love for the child is primary here, not about what we get in our family when we get to love on a child. One of the most famous and often quoted verses surrounding orphan care, as I said, was James 1.27. So, pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The word visit there, episkeptome in the Greek, it means to care for, to uh, personally look after. It's very personal. It's, that word visit there is the same word in the Greek that's used to describe Jesus in other examples about how he visits people. We don't have time to get into it, but that same word describing how God is visiting his people is the same word described of how we're to visit orphans, which is really personal. You can't read the Bible and walk away unconvinced of, of God's special concern for the orphan. Third thing, and we're going to close up here. There's four ways to be a good Samaritan to foster children. And before I share what we can do to, to respond, so before I make some points of application, I want to read a, a quote by Tim Keller because I think this so adequately, I, I can identify with this. I think many of you, I live in Trustful. I live in a suburb, right? You live in a nice suburb, many, many of you. And if you don't, then don't think you're uh, excluded from this because we live in America, right? We're, we, we don't feel like we're on the Jericho Road many days, do we? It doesn't feel like we're walking around with all these needs around us. Tim Keller says, the comparative comfort most of us face can isolate us in a fictitious world where suffering is difficult to find. But this isolation is fragile for suffering surrounds us, even in the suburbs. We need an accurate view of the world in which we live. Perhaps we need to see that instead of living on islands of ease, we're living on the Jericho Road here in Alabaster, Alabama. We're going to walk along our journey of life, and most of us are never going to see, right, because we live in America, we're never going to see a child on the side of the road holding a sign that says, help me, I'm being abused, I haven't been fed in three days, I need some help. We can, I think many of us here are well-intended. We, if we saw someone half dead, most of us would clear our schedules. I'd like to think even I would do that. If I saw someone truly half dead on the side of the road, I, I want to help, right? But how often is that going to happen? I've, I've been on this earth 32 years, some of you longer, and you probably are thinking, I've not been on much of what resembles the Jericho Road. And yet we, we are, we have to be. So my point here is we have to be strategic and intentional as dads, as moms, as kids. We've got to put ourselves in positions to serve or we're just going to walk around and say, well, if I w I'd be willing if, if there was an opportunity it's, I have a job and a family like many of you, and man, it's so easy. It's so easy to just get swept up in life, right? We've got to be intentional here. So four ways. One, pray. Sign up to be a prayer partner. And really, you can pray. Alabamachild.org slash pray. We will send you a magnet of what you can pray for each day of the week. We've got a prayer guide if you want to lead your family in doing this on a weekly basis. We'll send you emails of special prayer requests and regular prayer requests we have. AlabamaChild.org slash pray. Second, participation. I'm using alliteration here. That's another way you know I'm Baptist. We're going to do four Ps right here. Ready? First is prayer. Second, participation. Foster care or respite care. That's a special calling. Few will feel called, but I guarantee you some are called. 
So pray about that. Are you called to foster a child? Are you called to, to be a respite care provider? We've got a booth in the back, a display in the atrium, and you can ask questions. They may not have all the answers, but they can give you resources you need. You can be a direct care volunteer in our family care home. It's just a few miles from here. We have a family care home for single moms and their children. And these are women who've, um, many of them grew up in foster care. Many of them, if they weren't in foster care, probably should have been, don't have any family support. We have a family care home in Alabaster, not far from here, and we need some volunteers. We need direct care volunteers to be mentors to these moms, to, to love on these kids. We've got a big brother, big sister program we're rolling out. I don't see any reason. Westwood, I called Kenneth a few months ago when I knew we were rolling these volunteer programs out, and I was like, man, y'all are the church. Y'all, y'all, you're the first one I'm calling, dude. So that's kind of what's landed me here now. I had a meeting with Kirsten and the missions team. Um, I hope I said her name right, Kirsten. And uh, it was great. And so we're going to be here in, in October to have, uh, to just, again, bring aware, awareness and opportunities because you can really have a direct impact. You can be as, as involved, perhaps, as you want to be. Direct care opportunities. We, we have a needs list where you can collect things. You can sponsor children at Christmas. We've got opportunities to engage, but go, to, go in the atrium if you've got questions about that. Third is promotion. That's what happens here. <clears throat> Me coming here this morning is promoting. The many, many reason people don't respond is they don't even know there's a need, right? And the fourth thing is provision. It takes resources, about $12 million a year to do what we do. Uh, we're not a volunteer-driven ministry. We have opportunities for volunteers to engage, but it does take financial resources. So that's a valid way to, to support here. I'm going to close this in prayer. So I would ask you to consider where do you fit into that? Are you going to hold the rope for those to go down into the pit and serve? Or are you going to go down, or you feel called to go into the pit and serve? 